Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. This is the path of Asha, the path of truth and cosmic order. From this comes the life force given by Ahura Mazda, the wise lord, who is all good. He stands in opposition to falsehood, deceit, and the lies spread by Druge. By following the path of Asha, one can become a master of it, an Ashavan, and bring happiness into the world, helping in the fight against Druge. The requirements are simple. Among them, follow the path of Asha, spread happiness through charity, recognize the spiritual equality and duty of both men and women alike, and be good for the sake of goodness without expectation of reward. Because that's how it works in Zoroastrianism. Good happens for those who do righteous deeds, not for reward, but for their own sake. Those who do evil are said to be attacked and confused by the Druze, and are responsible for aligning themselves back to Asha by following the path. It's not that Druze is the evil versus the good of Ahura Mazda. Rather, that Druze is the absence of truth and order. It is the lie that all followers of Zoroastrianism are meant to oppose. Which makes what Darius did kind of puzzling. Remember that Cyrus had expanded the Persian Empire into the largest empire ever seen and then died, leaving it all to his two sons, Cambyses and Bardia. Cambyses got to rule the empire, and Bardia got to play what amounted to second fiddle. Granted, it was the sort of second fiddle that got to more or less rule all of the eastern portion of the Persian Empire without interference, but it was still second fiddle. Eventually, with Cambyses and all the big nobility out in Egypt for years on end, the Persian people left back home got a bit tired of it all and decided they needed someone else in charge, someone who was home on a Thursday night and remembered to haul the trash out to the curb every week. Someone like Bardia. And of course, with the empire in turmoil, Cambyses finally decided to hurry back home and do some damage control. Except he never made it. Somehow or other, he managed to impale his leg on his own sword. The wound turned bad, and he died without ever getting back home. Which left all his generals, who were also the very well-off nobles of Persia, stranded out in the middle of Syria somewhere, without much of anything to do while Bardia seized the Persian throne. Except, it seems everyone got Bardia wrong. Sure, he was pleasant enough while following his father Cyrus's instructions, but pretty much as soon as he had the place to himself, he started levying taxes on all the folks who weren't close personal friends, like those nobles stuck in traffic in Syria. And that pretty much upset everyone. On the one hand, because if you were one of those nobles, all your land and money and slaves just disappeared. And if you weren't one of those nobles, sure, you might be more or less on Bardia's side, but it sure did look deceitful and underhanded and definitely was not what people were expecting Bardia to do. Meanwhile, Cambyses and Bardia's nth cousin, Darius, was part of the contingent in Syria and he'd been keeping a weather eye on things both in the field and back home in Persia. And Darius was one of those people who likes to get more than just the weather reports. He likes to know things that others don't, 
not just in that word-a-day calendar sort of way, where each new word gets shoehorned into every conversation whether it belongs there or not, but in that way where each bit of info gets connected up to every other bit of info so that a picture starts to form of what's really going on where. Because what he was going to do with that information is important, and it's going to surprise nearly everyone in and out of Persia when he uses it. And you'll never be quite able to prove that he was the driving force behind everything that happened, and not just the lucky beneficiary of things like accidental leg stabbings and imposters on the throne. This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. You don't just lightly kill off a second king in the space of a year and expect to maintain stability. Darius knew this, and in spite of how much everyone seemed to want to be rid of Bardia, the prudent course was to ensure that as few people as possible knew what was really going on. Now, perhaps, as additional insurance when the time came, it should look as if what was about to happen was someone else's idea entirely. Say, some guy named Otanis, who, aside from being wealthy and influential, also had designs on the throne of Persia all his own. Let him organize seven conspirators, all with the aim of eliminating Bardia. Let him put himself forward as the natural successor, and let him carry on that way a bit. Just long enough to convince anyone who might look that it was all his plan. But then maybe, just quietly, put a bug in his ear about how the king's cousin was probably in line as well. And how the king's cousin certainly had as much, if not more, of a claim to said throne. And look, he just happens to be related to someone else you've got in the conspiracy already anyway. Oh, and look, here's Artifernes, Darius's brother. And he looks ready to throw all his support behind Darius at a moment's notice. I wonder if we shouldn't just reconsider who we try to put on the throne. Hmm? What do you think, Otanis? Well, since practically half the group of seven conspirators was on his side anyway, little of Darius's effort was needed to have things pretty much his own way, especially since Otanis kept counseling everyone to go slowly and carefully and bide their time waiting for the perfect moment. Darius, on the other hand, advocated for a swift, decisive strike before the conspiracy could be uncovered and the new king warned. So back to Persia the conspirators rode, looking for King Bardia. Well, looking is perhaps too strong a word for what they were doing. They didn't have to do much looking at all, because they knew more or less exactly where the king would be. Remember that the main Persian capital of Pasargade was located in the southern climes of the Persian Empire, which meant that during this summer it was unbearably hot. Fortunately, the Median emperor, Astyages, had set up Ekbatana in the Zagros Mountains, which in the summer was pleasantly cool. We talked about it in our episode on the Medes. Well, the year was heading into autumn when the conspirators set out, which meant that the emperor and all his court would be on their way back to Pasargade from Ekbatana. All Darius and company had to do was figure out how far along Bardia was and meet him on the road. So off they went along the Khorasan Highway. By September, they were at the borders of Medea at the foot of the Zagros Mountains, waiting for the king to come down and meet them. They didn't have long to wait. 
Merchants and travelers along the way confirmed that the king was coming, and soon, various royal outriders and members of the court were appearing on the highway, hastily making their way back to the heart of the empire to prepare the way for the king. Then, word reached the conspirators that white horses had been seen in a nearby valley. And if you listen to our episode on white horses, you'll know that they are often considered auspicious, and so it was in Persia. Well, everyone knew that the white horses of Medea were the best there was. And even more importantly, everyone knew that the horses were in some way connected with each and every king of Persia. It was a dead certainty that Bardia would divert from his course to go see the sacred herd. Even more so because Bardia needed to legitimize his rule. He knew he was in trouble and that much of Persia was against him where they had once been for him. If he could be seen in commune with the horses and could get the magi who were already in contact with the herd to speak favorably about his future as ruler, it would all but seal the deal on his reign. So on the night of September 29th, 522 BCE, Bardia and his retinue pulled into Sikhivatish, a nearby fort, in preparation to meet the herd. Which is where the conspirators found him took him by surprise, and, it was said, where Artaphernes killed the king. And you know, it all seems a bit sneaky and underhanded, doesn't it? Would you get away with calling any of that good thoughts, good words, and good deeds? Did it seem like the sort of thing Ahura Mazda asked of his people in combating Druge? No, not really. If anything, it all seemed exactly like something someone lost to the lie would come up with. Which was a problem. You couldn't just assassinate a king like that and then claim the throne. Which means, we expect, that it was probably a good thing it wasn't the king they had killed. No, no. See, the king died a long, long time ago. A jealous Cambyses had years before become overcome with jealousy. He was clearly just as savage as everyone thought he was, and he had Bardia murdered and replaced. And not just any old replacement, but a foul necromancer, a magus, had taken his place and his form, fooling all Bardia's friends and family. Why, were it not for one of Bardia's unsuspecting wives casually running her fingers through the impostor's hair one night and finding him bereft of ears— the conspiracy might never have been uncovered. Had she not spoken to her father about the discovery, and he in turn told the conspirators, this Magus, whose name was apparently Gaumata, would have succeeded in taking the entire empire. And no wonder he'd been taken at the fort near the White Horses, for there too were all the other Magi. It was a well-known spot for them. This is all, of course lies. To you and us, transparently, patently false lies. Terrible lies that no one would ever believe in these modern, better educated times. But we often fool ourselves into believing we're far more sophisticated than those who came before, that we can see through the falsehoods and, dare we use the term, fake news, presented to us on a daily basis, no matter what side you're on. But really, we're far more basic than that. What we really do is glare menacingly at anything we don't agree with and label it lies, while giving a soft pass to things that are obviously clearly correct. And we can tell they're correct because we agree with them from the start. 
Well, it was no different for the Persians of Darius's time. And Darius knew it. The greatest tragedy that could befall the entire empire was to have it fall into the hands of the lie. And by offering the story they did, practically before the king had started cooling, Darius and the conspirators became, if not actually heroes, then saviors of the empire. They secured it for Ahura Mazda, for Asha, for truth and cosmic order. And it didn't matter that the story they told was unbelievable on the face of it, that it was just an excuse to cover what they had really done. By telling it, they made it possible for their fellow Persians and Medes and everyone else in the empire to accept that what had been done had to be done. That there was no other course to take. By killing Bardia, Darius and his fellows had restored the universe to its rightful path and preserved the order of the Persian kingdom. Still, Darius's position was precarious. What he needed was a way to convince even those who doubted that he was the obvious and rightful successor to the throne. And this he did by further wrapping himself in the teachings of Zoroaster. He made sacrifices to Ahura Mazda in the traditional locations of both the Medes and the Persians. He drew parallels between he and his six cohorts and Ahura Mazda's six beneficent immortals who issued forth from the Lord of Wisdom himself. In this way and others, Darius worked to show that not only was he a servant of the truth, but he was also the representative of Ahura Mazda on Earth. Darius was, according to Darius, the chosen one. Not only was his claim on the throne hereditary, not only could he claim it by right of leading the conspiracy, but the throne was his by divine right as well. But still, Darius's position teetered on the edge of a knife. Any mistake could be his last. And frankly, opportunities for mistakes were rife. Within days of returning to Pasargade and being officially crowned as king, Darius's empire was mostly in revolt. He returned to Ekbatana and there found that support for Bardia was still strong. Revolts in Elam and Babylon broke out, and Darius, looking to the security of the empire, headed to Babylon first. It was a jewel not to be lost. When Cyrus had conquered it just 17 years before, he had, as he had always done, left it largely to its own devices once it was secured as part of the Persian Empire. It pleased the Babylonians to think of this as a temporary situation, and with the divisiveness over Bardia's death, it seemed that temporary ended now. Pushing rapidly into Mesopotamia, Darius met the Babylonian army in December of 522 BCE and routed it. Six days later, he wiped it out entirely and pushed on to Babylon. What he found there was no surprise, not to Darius at least. As we said, he liked information. Spies and informants had been in the city well ahead of the Persian army, and so finding it in a shamble was just what Darius expected. Home to some 250,000 people, Babylon was divided in both loyalty and purpose along several lines. The priests and the businessmen looked at Darius and his army as an opportunity, while the regular citizens, if there could be said to be any since Babylon was a crossroads of displaced people and ethnic minorities not native to Mesopotamia itself, seemed all too eager to greet an army and ruler who looked upon the city as already belonging to him and who could make the case that once again, supported by the Babylonian priesthood, 
Darius was no more than claiming what was his by divine right and once more protecting the city. They opened the gates to the Persians, and Darius claimed the city's crown. Unfortunately, it did nothing to quell rebellion elsewhere in the empire. Elam and now Bactria, Bardia's old home turf, were in revolt. Then Persis, Medea, Parthia, Assyria, and Egypt. Everywhere he looked, a portion of the Persian Empire was trying to fall away, and Darius's grasp on them was slipping. Fortunately, the seven conspirators were still loyal, and so was the vast and very capable Persian army. Within a single year, Darius managed, with their help, to quell all the revolts and secure the empire once more. But how? How do you go from most of the biggest empire the world has ever seen falling apart around you to stability inside of a year? Even assuming you have the greatest generals ever on your side commanding the best and biggest army ever, how do you sort it all out in just a year and never have to deal with it again? At Mount Behistun in the Kermanshah province of Iran, high up on a cliff is the Behistun inscription. It is one of the most important inscriptions in the world. Second, perhaps, only to the Rosetta Stone. See, without the Behistun inscription, it is unlikely we would ever have learned how to decipher Mesopotamian cuneiform. Because, written on the cliff face in three different forms of cuneiform, Old Iranian, Elamite, and Babylonian, are the words of King Darius the Great himself. Once the Old Iranian inscription was deciphered, it unlocked the key to deciphering the other two. The inscription depicts a bearded Darius with a foot upon the neck of Gaumata, while behind him a rope ties nine other would-be kings together at the neck, and each and every one of them carries an inscription declaring them to be liar kings who attempted to claim power in the chaos following Bardia's death. And fortunately for our purposes, Darius explains exactly how he put down each rebellion and secured the empire. The Elamites were sent what might have been an envoy, or might have been something else entirely, who took the pretender king of Elam captive and brought him to Darius, who then killed him. And then the Babylonians got Darius's personal attention, as we have heard. Then Elam again, where someone didn't get the message the first time and thought they might like to be king too. But now, being on friendlier terms with Elam since the first pretender was removed, the people of Elam took care of the problem for Darius and killed the new pretender themselves. A Mede named Phryortes led a revolt in Medea and took the throne there. Darius appointed a Persian named Hydarnus to lead the combined Median-Persian army against Phryortes. That's right, the Median army was still on Darius's side. Well, you can imagine how things went when the rebels met the combined army. They were defeated and Hadarnes camped in the Median district of Campanda to await Darius's arrival. Near the start of May 521 BC, Armenia revolted. Darius appointed an Armenian named Adarsi to head another portion of the Persian army, which then marched into Zuza in Armenia and gave battle to the rebels there. However, having more rebels than good sense, it seems, the Armenians would stage another two rebellions against the troops led by Dadarsi, and a further two against a second contingent of Persians led by a man named Valmisa. 
Once all was said and done, some two months had passed, the rebellion had been put down, and both generals awaited Darius's arrival in Armenia. Having finally untangled himself in Babylon, Darius headed to Medea, where he met up with his waiting army against Ferortes. There, they fought Ferortes' troops again, finally captured the man, and then... Well, in Darius's words... I cut off his nose, his ears, and his tongue. I put out one eye, and he was kept in fetters at my palace entrance, and all the people beheld him. Then did I crucify him in Ecbatana, and the men who were his foremost followers, those at Ecbatana within the fortress, I flayed and hung out their hides, stuffed with straw. Hot on the heels of that result, a Sigardian called Triton Takimis revolted and claimed the throne of Sigardia. A Persian contingent was sent, and by now the expected result occurred. Triton Takimis got the same treatment as Freortes. And at this point, even Darius is getting a little tired of telling the story of these revolts and opts for the Reader's Digest version for much of the rest of the history. The Parthians and the Hyrcanians revolt, aligning themselves with Freortes, and he puts them down. Someone named Frata in the province of Margiana revolts, and down they go. Then someone named Vayazdara causes an entire Persian district to revolt by claiming to be yet another son of Cyrus named Smyrtus. Darius' appointed general wipes out the impostor's army, chases the man across parts of Persia, and crucifies him when he's caught, along with his followers. But not before this Smyrtus alike stirs up trouble elsewhere in Persia by sending a man off to harass the governor of Aracosia, which, as you might expect, did not go over well. So off goes the Persian army, which wins all the battles and kills the fellow and his followers. And then, as if all this wasn't enough, back to Babylon goes Darius because they're revolting again. This time the rebellion is led by an Armenian claiming to be, and this would be the third or fourth such claimant if you're keeping score at home, Nebuchadnezzar. Well, another bit of the army is sent to deal with it. They win, and the pretender and all his cronies are crucified right in Babylon itself. And that is how you hold an empire together when it's coming apart around your ears. In one year. The very first year of your rule. Still don't quite see how the trick was done? Well, remember how we started. Remember the god Ahura Mazda, he who is truth and cosmic order. And remember that lies come from Druge and that man has no better goal in life than to assure the spread of truth and order. And naturally, all these kings that claimed to be the rulers of all these little places? Well, they weren't, were they? Because Darius had taken the Persian throne, which meant he and not they were the rightful ruler of everything that had been in the Persian Empire, which meant they were telling lies. They had lost the path and fallen victim to Druge, and so Darius explained, very carefully, in each entry on each supposed king. They spread lies. And rebellion? Well, hardly anything was less orderly than a rebellion. And Darius, being emperor and all, simply by the grace of Ahura Mazda, had a duty to prevent disorder and lies. It was practically a Zoroastrian commandment. Bring truth and order wherever you can. And of course, Darius remembered to thank Ahura Mazda every step of the way for providing the means of victory over the servants of Druge. Good thoughts, good words, good deeds. This is the path of Asha, 
the path of truth and cosmic order. From this comes the life force given by Ahura Mazda, the wise lord, who is all good. He stands in opposition to falsehood, deceit, and the lies spread by Druge. Thanks for listening to part three of our Persian series. There's only one more to go and then we'll be ready to move on to new topics in May. If you've enjoyed the series so far, why not head over to gmwordoftheweek.com and check out the various methods of supporting the show we offer. You can become part of our regular supporters who help keep the show ad-free and allow us to pursue month-long topics like this one, as well as single-serving one-shot episodes. In a very real sense, it is the support of our patrons that make it possible for us to indulge our curiosity and share what we find with you. Once again, this episode is well served by the book Persian Fire by Tom Holland. This episode was researched, written, and produced by Brian Casey, who hasn't carved anything into any rocks. Yet. Music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. This is what I did by the favor of Ahura Mazda in one and the same year after that I became king. Nineteen battles I fought. By the favor of Ahura Mazda, I smote them and took prisoner nine kings.